gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so I could be wrong on this, and my guest might actually be able to, to correct me, but if memory serves, Louis Rukeyser used to do a PBS show called Wall Street Week or something like that, and then he got canceled, and like a year later, I think it was CNBC picked him up, and they said, uh, and he, his opening monologue was, now, before we were rudely interrupted, um, that comes to mind because like a year ago, I had Matt Continetti, my colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, uh, come on The Remnant. We did a, a two-hour uh, conservative nerdapalooza um, that went chronologically through the book, but we ran out of time around 1980. Um, and so I don't know if we're going to just formally just pick up where we left off because I haven't gone back to like listen to exactly where we left off. But Matt, I kept saying to Matt, he should come back on. And he says, I want to come back on, but why don't we wait until the paperback comes out? So the paperback is out. And the book, just so everyone can get it, is The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, I highly recommend our conversation from before because I had some disagreements. I've forgotten some of them. Um, they were all good natured and just sort of editorial choice kind of things rather than like fundamental metaphysical first order things. Um, but I think the conversation elucidated some interesting stuff, but I can't, since I can't remember a lot of those um, and the ones I do remember, we already talked about it. I highly recommend going back to those episodes. We'll put them in the show notes. And with that, uh, that housekeeping uh, throat clearing out of the way, Matt Continetti, welcome back to the Remnant. Hi Jonah. Thanks for having me. We'll get to the book. I promise. But I got to ask how, uh, you, you seem you seem from time to time burdened by your new role on the commentary <laughs> podcast, which I think you're doing a great job. Uh, Thank you. But um, yeah, uh, you seem sometimes you seem to be of heavy heart yes. um, on that podcast. What, how's that going for you? Well, you know, Jonah, I've never done a daily podcast before. We we had a short lived weekly podcast at the Free Beacon called Write and Writer. Uh, which uh, was ended in 2020, had a good run, but that was once a week. And then, of course, I've made appearances on many other podcasts, including yours, uh, but those are always sporadic. So when the invitation came to appear on a daily uh, podcast, uh, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into, but I did um, want to take the opportunity because more and more, I see evidence that podcasts are really the way most people, especially young people, uh, get their news and information. So I, I did want to um, take that opportunity. Little did I know that it would uh, slowly begin the process of killing me uh, because, uh, you know, it's not just the amount of work uh, that one has to do, or at least uh, the amount of work one thinks one has to do to prepare for these podcasts. It's also just having exposing yourself to the radioactive waste that is America's news cycle every day, I think has uh, deleterious effects on one's mental and uh, physical health. And nonetheless, however, <laughs> I feel as though I have a duty <laughs> to the American people 
to uh, get up early in the morning and uh, listen to my colleagues uh, and, uh, on the commentary podcast and our great leader, John Podhoritz, and uh, chime in whenever I think I have something useful or uh, sarcastic to say. Um, yeah, so I mean, I have notes. I, I, kudos to you for the preparation that you do. Uh, <laughs> you can, I can tell. Like, I can tell. Like, you're actually bringing up salient and relevant bits of information uh, in a timely and appropriate manner in ways that I have long given up trying to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet, but I see the appeal. <laughs> and um, uh, I mean, it's, look, it's not like I don't follow the news, but like uh, the I, like you're not quite. I, I don't know how to put this. You don't quite put your obsessiveness on your sleeve the way Noah did where like Noah's earnestness and I think Noah's great right and I think he's actually it's great to have a truly neocon in the correct sense of the term or close to the correct sense of the term voice on the editor's podcast these days I mean the commentary podcast was not lacking for neocon expression <laughs> no no um, yeah yeah, and even bringing you on board is kind of like bringing Coles to Newcastle on that yeah. in that regard. Um, but uh, uh, the granularity of you know my 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 dad always used to make this point. Robert Novak used to make this point that if you really want to be have an edge up on people in punditry, you need to read the long New York Times and Washington Post articles to the end, because often what happens is the the stuff that the reporter's intellectual honesty won't allow him to leave out. They just put, or the editor's intellectual honesty won't allow the paper to leave out. They'll cram at the end. And those to be sure things are the things that actually tell you the real story. I mean, like oh, yeah. Mickey Kouse was a champion of discovering the buried lead in the New York times stuff. And I can tell you're still engaged in that process in a way that I, I, I can only do when I'm specifically motivated for a specific story rather than just the news. It is a great piece of advice. And it's funny you mention uh, Bob Novak because his mentor and friend, Fred Barnes, also communicated that to me uh, when I was starting out in uh, opinion journalism 20 years ago, that you want to read to the end uh, in particular, because that's where the, the expert quotes that the New York Times reporter disagrees with are placed. And so usually you'll find the most telling quote toward the end of the story. And you'll also maybe find, if you're an aspiring writer, a nugget of information that the reporter didn't really need to know what to do with, but that you can use to build your own story and take. So yes, I do, I do still follow the Novakian, Barnesian method, but it, takes, it does take time. Uh, there is one exception, though. And another thing that Fred taught me is that the, the most dreadful words in journalism are first in a series. <laughs> so I tend to skip the, uh, you know, the 7,000 multi, 7,000 multi, uh, word multi-part articles that are clearly there to um, uh, attract the Pulitzer Prizes uh, every year. I skip those, but I, when it comes to the daily journalism of the things that interest me, I do try to read to the end. So I have a theory about the series stuff. The Partly because they're mostly, not all, but mostly geared towards Pulitzer bait, right? Um, uh, but also, they are the product of internal deliberations about devoting massive resources to a single story. And so, in my view, you should always read the first three paragraphs because that's where they'll put the, the, the thing 
the spicy news thing, right? Or first five paragraphs, whatever the, 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 the above the fold part. Um, but then you can skip the rest because generally those series, they have to do there's by their own internal logic. They are compelled to do a, um, here's why we're doing this series piece. Right. You know? And so like you get this meta journalism school thing about why we're doing this. And then the second article in the series is the one that actually has better information in it. Right. Um, but I, I, I thought there was a lot of interesting things in the massive Tucker Carlson, New York times magazine piece, but I thought it was kind of a wasted opportunity in, in part because New York Times seems to think that if they could just prove to everyone Tucker Carlson's racist, that would be the end of Tucker Carlson. Um, but it also just spent a lot of time trying to justify why it was written in the first place. And Well, you know, yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, I think a lot of those series are written because they're subjects that really interest the journalists, you know? And so, for example, the Tucker series in the Times... I did read a fair amount of that simply because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a scholar of uh, conservatives, conservative politics and history and populism. And, and so it was interesting to me, but what you all, but mostly you find, you know, um, uh, it, these series are written around topics such as, you know, the, the racism of, you know, local parks and, or, and, or, you know, um, the cruelty of Republicans toward trans people. And the, since I already kind of know the reporter's conclusions and doubt that there will be actually any factual material relevant to my day-to-day life and work, I, I tend to skip them. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those kinds of pieces in a big, diverse, sprawling country, if all it takes are three examples to make a trend, <laughs> yeah, everyone's gonna be able to find the examples that they want. Right. I mean, I could write a whole series on conservatives being super nice to trans people because at least three conservatives have been super nice to trans people. It's just like a lot of those stories are water carrying for a cause that I agree are not really worth more than skimming or following Twitter to see someone who finds the choicest bits. And then, okay, now I get what that article is about. Um, all right. Enough of this meta punditry about punditry. Um, uh, we could probably do an AI seminar on the, 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 the I'm struggling for the right word. The, um, the anatomy of, of punditry without ever actually getting into any politics. You, you know? know, though, I feel sometimes like I would be only be good, uh, for the opening sessions about how people used to do punditry. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, I yeah. could, I could tell them about, little magazines or about the birth of the op-ed page or about the birth of the McLaughlin group and uh, Crossfire. But these days I look at the media landscape and I see uh, people building audiences on Twitter or um, on YouTube or God help us on TikTok or rumble or rumble, you know, and, um, and I just kind of uh, throw up my hands in um, despair and confusion because I don't actually know how one, or at least how, I, if I were 20 years younger, uh, would negotiate this environment. And I have to admit, if she would take a truth serum kind of thing, I would watch a panel where Candace Owens worked through her process. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that would actually be interesting yeah. if, he, if she would tell the truth about what how, is your you process. Know, yeah. Yeah. How do you come to these conclusions that women should never have gotten the vote? 
Yes. Uh, I mean, walk me through your thinking. I mean, certainly a, a lesson in entrepreneurship from personalities like Candace Owen would be very useful because the way that they're able to leverage um, rhetoric and controversy into huge paydays, I mean, um, that is impressive. Maybe not the healthiest for American democracy, yeah, yeah, yeah. but certainly, certainly quite an individual achievement. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we could go down a long rabbit hole about the 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 tendency of people to think that like not pandering to the lowest common denominator is the way to get rich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that clearly, I, I'm I'm evidence that that that, that is not the case. Yeah, well, tell me about it. Me too. All right. Um. So uh, first of all, before we get, I, I don't know how we're going to do this, but like, um, uh, do you write anything new for the book? I did. Yes. Okay. So why don't we uh, talk about that? What's guy should have given you the paperback edition. And then there is a new afterward in the paperback guy will be flogged. Good. good. I just want to make sure that that flogging commences. There is a new, uh, afterward it's entitled the Trump era and it takes the story, the best era of the right from, um, uh, Joe Biden's inauguration, which is where the hardcover edition ends up until the, um, immediate aftermath of the 2022 midterm elections. And the basic argument of this about 10,000 word uh, essay that's exclusive to the paperback uh, is that um, we are essentially living in the Trump era of American politics. Um, And Biden is um, at best a response to it uh, that and could be in maybe the end to it. But as of now, uh, President Biden could also just be a brief interlude uh, between the first and second Trump term. And then we I also discuss kind of developments developments on the new right um, in the last two years. Uh, the basically the fissure between the national conservatives who are meeting actually, as we speak in London, England, um, and the post-liberal Catholic conservatives um, get into the January 6th commission, um, the, the expulsion of uh, Liz Cheney. Um, so uh, cover all of those political developments, a little bit less on the ideas um, than in the rest of the book, but a way of bringing the reader up to, up to speed. Um, so, um, I mean, long time listeners, this podcast know I have opinions on this integralist versus, uh, nationalist thing, but I still get emails from people saying, can you explain the difference between these things? So clearly I have failed. Um, so can you give it a try? Can you just sort of explain what this movement is? And then we can talk about whether it, how significant it is or isn't. Sure. Maybe the way to visualize it is that there is this umbrella uh, grouping called the new right. And, you know, as I make the point in the book and you and I have made the point in previous conversations, this is maybe the third or fourth new right that we've seen in the last century in American politics. But that, that's to start with that kind of umbrella of the new right. And within this new right, there are a host of groups. I mean, uh, ranging from ultra MAGA Republicans um, to um, uh, essentially kind of uh, you know uh, semi-authoritarian paramilitaries like the Proud Boys um, to the main intellectual camps 
which break down uh, as follows. There are the national conservatives who look to the nation state and national culture and language and religion as kind of the foundational concepts of a conservative philosophy. And then on the other side, there are uh, what we would call post-liberal Catholics who um, are looking for basically the reassertion of the faith in the institutions of um, American political, social, economic life. In particular, the uh, reassertion of the Catholic faith. And they differ on a a few issues from those NatCons. In particular, um, the issue of the nation state, which would be an important difference, right? And the Fisher came into view uh, with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022. Prior to the invasion, both the NatCons and the post-liberals took a very um, non-interventionist view of American foreign policy. America shouldn't become involved overseas. Much of the foreign policy, uh, certainly since the end of the Reagan administration, probably even before that, uh, was flawed in their view. However, when Putin invaded Ukraine, the NatCons, I think to their credit, said, well, you know, Ukraine is a nation. And so Taiwan is not officially a nation, uh, but has formed a national identity. So as national conservatives, we should probably defend the idea that one nation can't just invade another uh, on a whim. And the post-liberals took exception to that. The post-liberals are much more non-interventionist and, you know, uh, kind of I want to say they are pro-Russia. They take Russia's side of the argument of why this war is taken. Yeah, they're anti-anti-Russia, I think, for the most part, yeah. Um, now, there's been some, I think, erosion of NatCon defense of Ukraine um, uh, over the year um, of the conflict, and the NatCons may have come to a um, more uh, urbanist version or view of the conflict and not to just confuse people more, but in, in some ways, the most significant figure in this new right, other than Donald Trump, is the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who somehow is able to serve as a bridge still between the post-liberal Catholics who really appreciate Orban's style of governance and his cultural politics and the national conservatives who like Orban's style of politics and also like some of his cultural politics, but even more appreciate his defense of the nation against immigration and against the EU. So even though there's a separation between um, the national conservatives and the post-liberals, you can kind of view Orban as the figure who mediates between them. What's interesting is I've been mentioning all these places, Ukraine, Russia, Taiwan, London, Hungary, not any of it really has to do with the realities of American politics, where the side of the new right that is much more ultra MAGA uh, is is better uh, represented, more fully represented. 
and much more, I think, influential in how our politics is conducted. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I, I, I think the, I mean, uh, Pretty common observation at this point, but the lionizing of Ukraine of, of of Hungary is as silly as the sort of less lionizing of Scandinavia. You know, it it it's it's a mirage of what the actual reality of the country is like. It is basically cherry picking the good bits bits without understanding, it, while at the same time decontextualizing all of it. It's you know the idea that like, but for Orban. Hungary would be swamped by immigrants is, you know, kind of ridiculous. Um, and the idea that this country of like 10 million, this landlocked country of like 10 million people, uh, which is much, much, much poorer than probably Alabama or Mississippi, um, is somehow our new North star. I just think this is sort of ridiculous, but it's an idea, right? I mean, it's sort of like, say what you will. It's an ethos. Um, War, and I enjoy those arguments. I know you enjoy those arguments. So like the integralists, I think, are just kidding themselves. I think the nationalists are kind of ridiculous in their analysis, but there's something there. Um, 
But you talk about the sort of ultra MAGA types at home, who I agree with you, are actually more politically salient than either of those guys. And I think one of the reasons those guys have turned into sort of salon boutique debating societies is because each of them thought they were going to be able to be the Ferris Bueller at the head of the MAGA parade and convert this essentially libertarian populist idea light movement for their own purposes, right? I mean, I remember, I remember Sora Bamari is one of the leading integralists just talking about how this popular rebellion against the medico industrial state, um, having to do with like COVID lockdowns and this stuff is going to be converted into sort of the, the, the proletarian army of, of the integralists. And I was like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. Um, but on the, on the ultra MAGA side, are there any to your, I mean, I'm, this is a sincere question. I'm not just trolling them. Are there any sincere ideologically or intellectually consistent intellectuals to speak of? I mean, the, the nationalists have real intellectuals. The, the integralists have real intellectuals. Uh, who are the ultra mega intellectuals who follow the sort of the basic rule of being an intellectual, which is sticking with your ideas, even when the politicians you're associated with go a different way. Are there any, who would they be? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, we haven't brought up the Claremont Institute, um, which is uh, part of this new right as well. I think if any intellectual grouping could be associated with ultra MAGA, it might be Claremont. Um, Even there, their ideas are hard to parse. Um, uh, And in fact, there seems to be some dissent within that institution uh, in light of the past two years um, of the MAGA movement. I will say that for me, the ultra MAGA is much less a set of ideas than it is a basic attitude toward authority. Um, and it, it is an attitude uh, uh, that is intensely skeptical of the people who are in charge of America or at least the liberals who are in charge of parts of America. And this attitude does, does not believe um, media, which they see, uh, which it sees as liberal, does not believe gov- government uh, bureaucrats or spokesmen who they see as liberal. Uh, and they they, their attitude of animosity and resistance um, is just uh, all-encompassing. Um, when you get down to the nitty gritty of what ideas are motivating them, you know, there is probably, there is a base, base patriotism there or a, um, a version of patriotism. There is a view of what America ought to represent a view of the American past that is motivating their disgust and anger at contemporary American governance and society and culture. But you, it's not quite articulated. The best articulation of that view is actually coming from the Claremont folks who were put in charge of the 1776 commission by President Trump. Um, so, so I would say it's more of an attitude than an idea. In many ways, it's a echo of what Lionel, Lionel Trilling wrote in the preface to his book, The Liberal Imagination in 1950, where he looked at the American right of the time and I maybe somewhat disingenuously, or we don't actually know 
how closely he was reading Americans like Peter Virick. Um, uh, but com in comparison to British thinkers that he studied, like Samuel Coleridge or T.S. Eliot, he said, really, conser America, conservatism in America today is not ideas, but kind of irritable mental gestures. It's more of an attitude and a, and a posture toward central government the the experts in charge. I do think is what at root this populism is about is an anti-expert uh, emotion. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of ideology, but it is definitely the the kind of uh, connective tissue between all these groups and what what puts them in such a close connection to president former President Trump because. He, of course, hates everybody that's against him or who, or who he thinks is, uh, per, per, per portrays themselves as better than him. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a fair point. Um, I don't think you disagree, but I don't want to get you in trouble with people for something I'm saying. So feel free to disassociate yourself with my remarks. But uh, to the extent the intellectual project of the Claremont Institute and the surrounding the penumbra of intellectuals emanating from it. Uh, the extent I think you can actually say that they're in the business of making intellectual arguments. Um, they have to remain at an extremely high level of abstraction, right? Because they can't actually make the argument that um, there's a coherent ideological approach to Trump himself. Right. So either they have to talk about in sort of these broad brushstrokes um, of, of, you know, of abstraction or um, catastrophize, which was like the flight 93 election stuff. Um, um, or just sort of embrace a certain, I, I don't know, is nihilism the right word? You know, there was the guy, um, Kligenstein, who's the chairman of the Claremont Institute, who gave this speech about a year ago, making the case that, you know, he begins by saying, I often hear people say, I like Trump's policies, but it's the rest of the stuff that's the problem. And he says, they got it exactly backwards. The policies are irrelevant. The really great thing about Trump was the man himself, right? And he makes this, I, I think, embarrassing and oafish claim that Trump represents manly virtues and that um, his uh, brutish, thuggish, uh, uh, combativeness is what the country needs because we need a strong man and all of these kinds of things. Now, there are a lot of intellectuals who made very intellectual cases for strong men. I don't think this was one of the better ones, um, but it does, you know. But it gets to something, Jonah, which, which is, you know, which is for a certain type of Trump voter. And this is what I would say the ultra MAGA. Trump voter, it, 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 it's not the, any of the policies, but it is Trump's basic FU to anyone who would challenge him or to anyone who, who kind of mouths liberal pieties. And you saw that on display on, in the recent CNN town hall where Trump was at his most obnoxious. And yet the crowd, which was filled with all, Trump diehards, was like laughing and having a ball. I mean, that is what they like. It doesn't matter 
there were, I mean, the CNN's Caitlin Collins was asking him questions about scandals and January 6th. And so she wasn't really getting on many policy questions. So she did ask him about the debt ceiling debate we're having in Washington right now. And he said, basically, yeah, you know, let's, why not default, see what happens for a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm saying it's not, wasn't a policy heavy discussion. It was a Trumpy discussion and it allowed the, that aspects of Trump personality to, uh, fly free and the audience gobbled it up. I don't think that's every Republican or every Trump voter, but it is a, a significant group. Yeah, it's the core of his political persona, right? And and you know, the you know, I've been saying for seven years now that Trump and Trumpism, it's not really useful to think of them primarily as political phenomenon or ideological phenomenon. They're psychological phenomenon, right? And you know, again, psychological phenomenon have very can have very rich and powerful political and ideological valences, but the I think the psycholo- the psychology is the is the first mover in all of this stuff. And, you know, I hate, I've, I'm not, I don't think we've ever talked about him, but I, I have such mixed views of Richard Hofstetter. Um, and, you know, and part of his point about populism, his argument about populism was that, um, I think it's in the age of reform book, but I'm not sure, um, is that it's inherently anti-intellectual in a sort of profound and serious way. And, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is that the, you know, you and I are a little bit like the drunk who looks for his car keys where the light is good. We like the, the intellectual begats of conservatism, you know? Um, and, uh, there's something about, I've talked about this with Jonathan Adler, who's sort of another member of this elite club who really likes this stuff. And, um, there's something about obsession with origin stories <laughs> that, that it lends itself to the, you know, the Nash book to your book and all that kind of stuff. But I think one of the things that is an important takeaway from your book um, that is pretty absent in the Nash book, it's the major lacuna of the Nash book is that often in American politics and including in American intellectual politics, the ideas are lagging indicators behind the political forces on the ground. Um, and I just don't think an intellectual historian, I don't, there's not a shot of you. I'm just thinking that if, if, if all, if all you did was focus on ideas, the Trump era is going to be very annoying for future intellectual historians, because the thing that driving a lot of stuff isn't the sort of Richard Weaverian idea that ideas have consequences, right? It is facts on the ground and intellectuals bending towards them. Or am I being unfair? I, I don't think you're being unfair. The, I mean, the relationship between the ideas and the politics is basically the uh, guiding theme of my book. Um, and you're right that when I structured the book that way to actually pay more attention to the politics and how intellectuals were influencing the politics or were not influencing the politics uh, more often than not, uh, I saw that there was a great kind of... Um, incongruity between what politicians would say at one moment and what intellectuals were saying at another. And it's only rarely when they're synced up. In fact, it's during the second half of the book, in my view, with the commencement of the Reagan administration, that you finally see this creation 
of what a former Heritage Foundation executive called the decision-making loop, where the ideas were being generated by policy wonks, they were being publicized in conservative media, and then they were actually being implemented. In the early history, the stuff we spent two hours on the last year, it's a really kind of, you know, the intellectuals are saying one thing, but how you translate that into politics is uh, very hard, or more often than not, the Buckley conservatives were criticizing the institutional Republican Party for ignoring them or opposing them, running contrary to them. This was why Buckley organized the Manhattan 12 in 1971 to suspend support for Richard Nixon because he recognized Red China and he imposed wage and price controls in that summer. But there you saw kind of the um, ineffectuality of the intellectuals because by 1972, NR was mildly endorsing Nixon for re-election simply because the conservative alternative to him had failed in the primary. And, you know, as much as National Review was disappointed in Richard Nixon, they were repelled by the thought that George McCovern and the, and the new politics would come into power. So there is this mismatch constantly. What's unique about the Reagan period and really the period up to the George W. Bush administration is that you could see the ideas and the politicians working in concert with each other in a way that you couldn't see before and you can't really see now. This, the thing I always go back to um, when I think about this kind of stuff was actually the founding of the New Republic, which um, you know, today is a pale shadow of its former self. But um, you know, when it was first founded, it was basically what national greatness the website National Greatness was, or American Greatness, American Greatness, uh, was to Donald Trump, the New Republic was going to be for Teddy Roosevelt. But Teddy Roosevelt lost. And so then Woodrow Wilson comes in and he co-ops the progressive. And very soon, the New Republic becomes an all-in for Wilson kind of intellectual journal, at least on sort of the political intersections. And at one point, it's so pissed off. I wish I had brought the quote in to um, uh, read properly. Uh, TR comes into the editorial offices at one point to just rip these guys for abandoning him. And he says, this is, I'll get the real quote in a minute or when I'm done, but like, like something like this is a negligible tip sheet run by two uh, uncircumcised Jews. And, um, and, uh, and so, as some sort of horrible Gentile. I can't remember what the quote was, but I always loved I, the uncircumcised Jew. I've always thought is just such a obscure, dated <laughs> kind Teddy, of insult. Teddy had a way with words. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but that's you know that's what I was thinking of when when American Affairs launched, which was supposed to be the intellectual, the public interest of Trumpism. And I don't, you know, I wrote a corner post post at the time saying I wish them luck. Um, I've always believed that the, the chief strength of the right is that we like to make arguments and have these, and hash out these things in a serious way. Um, but they're going to have to make a choice about whether they're going to stay on path to be a uh, intellectually coherent project or they're going to be a defender of Trump. Because he can't be both because Trump, there is not an intellectual coherence to his actions. 
And I think they struggled with that. Um, they still exist, but, um, yeah, I think they chose uh, intellectual coherence over Trump. I mean, yeah, because Kreins eventually denounced Trump, right? The editor of American Affairs, Julius Krein, um, broke with Trump in a New York Times op-ed after the Charlottesville uh, riot. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it is interesting that the new right's favorite publication to write in for mass audience is the New York Times, which <laughs> tells you something about their relationship to conservatism. Um and this, since then, and they, they're a quarterly, they still publish. They have been intellectually consistent in this idea that um, basically they want a corporatist state, you know, um, uh, to power America into the rest of the 21st century. Um, interestingly enough, they had a recent article by their co-editor, Gladden Pappen, who is, belongs to that post-liberal Catholic camp I referred to earlier, bemoaning the end of the new right and the co-option of the national conservatives uh, essentially into kind of the institutional matrix of the conservative movement. And so even by the standards of American affairs, this new right has not been able to succeed. Though I will say, you know, my contrarianism always kicks in at some point. Um, there, you can see, I should revise my comments, you, it's hard to see the ideas. You can see the idea of uh, industrial policy begin to seep into our public policy debate. Um, you can see the shift in an attitude toward government sift into our debate. The closest thing the new right has to a senator is J.D. Vance, and he just scored a political victory in getting this railway safety bill um, approved by the Senate in the aftermath of the East Palestine train wreck. Um, and that shows how he's furthering a view that someone on the right shouldn't be uh, necessarily an advocate for limited government. Um, the other place where you see the ideas, if their ideas begin to seep through is, okay, if you have that, as I was talking about, that kind of foundational patriotism that that is at the you know, or a view of patriotism is at the base of Ultramaga that then kind of manifests itself in something like the 1776 Commission, which gives, you know, the idea that a, a patriotic history should be taught in America's schools. It's a response to the 1619 Project and anti-patriotic history <laughs> being taught in America's schools. And you can now see that idea that there's a certain type, there's a certain view of American history that should be placed into the American classroom, um, take root. I mean, it's taken root in Florida. Uh, Glenn Youngkin has uh, pursued some of these ideas as well. Now, that's not that different from what conservatives have been saying for a long time, right? It does, though, I think, in particular in the case of Florida, it sets up new questions about the relationship between state government and local government, right? Uh, which could undermine a federalist principle um, or principles of subsidiarity that conservatives have traditionally believed in. Um, in in terms of DeSantis's relationship to the state-run universities, there is another question there too, because universities have traditionally been, um, you know, uh, governed by ideas of academic freedom. That DeSantis is saying. Uh, don't really apply in a publicly funded context. 
So that you can see some seepage, one might say, of these ideas um, into American politics. It's just difficult because one, uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a river of, <laughs> it's not, it's not a overwhelming uh, transfer from a concept to reality. And two, on some of these subjects, it's stuff that American conservatives would always have agreed with, right? I mean, and that, and so it's kind of difficult to say. I do think, and I say this in the afterward, um, if there is one unifying concept on the American right today, it is the idea of anti-wokeness, that whatever we mean when we say woke is bad <laughs> and we need to, we need to oppose it. Uh, that I think has, uh, is substituting for what anti-communism was in previous generations. It's not, uh, it might unify the right, but it's not necessarily as powerful uh, for the nation as a whole. I think that's one of contemporary conservatism, conservatism's challenges. Yeah, look, I, I don't like, I mean, the way you and I would use woke, I don't like wokeness, right? But then again, the way you and I use woke is pretty much how we would have used political correctness 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, I think the problem with elevating wokeness, and I think you're right, to the, the, the sort of the glue of the right, the way anti-communism was, or anti-jihadism was in the war on terror period, right? Um, and there was you know, a million pieces about how anti-Islamo-fascism is the new Cold War and all that kind of stuff. The right needs an, an enemy. And, um, and so does the left. Don't get me wrong. It's politics. I, mean, I, I hate sounding like Carl Schmidt, but you know, politics in large part is who your enemies are. And um, the problem with the making wokeness the centerpiece, anti-wokeness the centerpiece on the right, is that it, it almost inexorably will lead to bad conspiratorial thinking. You know, I mean, even anti-communism and anti-jihadism led to a lot of messed up conspiratorial thinking. I mean, um, there are a lot of people who lost their minds and, and would tell me that such and such Republican is a secret Muslim or has gone dimmy and all these kinds of crazy things, you know, 15 years ago. But when you start from the premise that it's not a foreign enemy, but it's your fellow citizens, the distance between conspiracy thinking and, um, and where your original position is very, very small. And I think that one of the dangers of making that kind of thing, the centerpiece of the right. But I want to ask you, so you can respond to that, but the thing I wanted to ask you was I'm actually working on, at the Dispatch, we're working on a podcast series of intellectual history, so some of this stuff is in my head, and also I just reviewed the, uh, the Patrick Deneen book, so that's also where I'm coming from on this. Um, Has that review published? Not yet. Oh. It's uh, whenever Acton comes out with it. Uh, so I, I keep wanting not to be a bad bad. Bad I felt like I was off on, uh, you know, I was off duty or something. Cause usually you write something, Joan and I yeah, exactly. rush to obtain it. Uh-huh. Um, um, you sit on a throne of lies. Um, but, um, uh, the, 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 as you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm pretty, I'm very metaphysically philosophically conservative in the sense that I don't believe there are actually such things, a lot of new ideas, um, in politics. And, um, and so when people propose things as new ideas, um, that aren't new, I always go one, I often go to one of two assumptions. One, they actually don't know the history, 
right? And they think, do they think just because they discovered something for the first time, that makes it means that no one has, um, or B, they don't, they either don't know about the history or they don't care about the history, but they're using this idea as a way to attain power status, uh, advantage over other factions. Right. And so Nothing you described and what J.D. Vance's view is, what this corporatism thing is, this industrial policy stuff is. I agree with you entirely. None of that crap is remotely new. I mean, it's just not even like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even, it, it didn't even disappear for a while. You know, it's, it's been part of the national conversation for, you know, pick your time frame, 50, 100, go back to Alexander Hamilton. I mean, like this stuff is like part of the American con- conversation political conversation forever and the idea that somehow these guys have discovered some brand new thinking rather than basically taking advantage of the novelty of being a conservative who capitulates to left-wing thinking and now calls it right-wing um there's just not a lot of there there i mean that's i mean this is my frustration with this This is like you know you know where's the beef like where are these new ideas that people are talking about because you know, most of the stuff that the new right does, as you say, is pretty un, con, is unobjectionable from standard conservative point of view. And the stuff that is new is really not new because it's a new idea. It's new to have a right winger saying, oh, yeah, we need industrial policy now. Right. It's new to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, it's funny you say that because the two thinkers who are uh, being rehabilitated uh, but well, there are three I'll name, but the, the three thinkers who are being rehabilitated by this new right are John Kenneth Galbraith, right? <laughs> you know, the left-wing economist and author of the affluent society in the 1950s, uh, George Kennan, the, you know, master diplomat, and of course the author of the long telegram, one of the main, uh, the first person to see the cold war coming into being, but, th- but then took, a. a veered off and took a pretty radical uh, view of America, critic, critical view of American foreign policy. For the, and that's the Kennan that the new right is uh, rehabilitating, is the bad Kennan, you know. Um, and then Christopher Lash, who is a, a very important thinker, but who was always a man of the left. And um, even though toward the end of his life in his book, The Revolt of the Elite, uh, main basically laid down the main intellectual arguments uh, or explanations for the populism that we've been seeing for the last um, God, 15 years now. Um, you know, it, it's not a conservative at, by any means, right? Uh, he, you have to do some work to make him a small C conservative and he'll never be a movement conservative. What, so that, that's, what, that's what this new right is actually importing into the conservative movement to the degree that they've now become incorporated into parts of it. And one, uh, another observation I make in the afterward to the new, to the paperback edition of the right is in so many ways, this new right resembles the new left, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in the new left that we encountered in the sixties and that I write about in the book, you know, its main opponent was not conservatism. It was liberalism. And similarly, the main opponent of the new right is not actually progressivism. It's conservatism. They want to overthrow or change the conservatism that stands in their way. Um, the new left 
uh, always thought that, you know, uh, Russia was a little misunderstood. You know, the new right thinks so too. And the new left was very anti-war except culture war. And it's the same with the new right today. So it's a, it's a weird parallelism. Um, and you're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the idea that, look, I mean, if you're a conservative, you thought John Kenneth Galbraith was wrong in the 1950s and still wrong today. Like he actually didn't, he was a, he had a great prose style. Yeah. But he didn't actually know what he was talking about. So why should we bring him back? I mean, it's kind of confusing to me. Part of it is uh, this lack of historical knowledge that you're talking about. I always remember, I, I remember this quote um, from uh, Wilfred McClay's appreciation of Irving Kristol when Irving Kristol died in 2009. He recalled some late dinner with Irving Kristol for the end of Kristol's life. And Kristol made, the, you know, someone was lamenting the state of affairs and this was in the run up to Barack Obama's election, and it was in the midst of the Great Recession, the financial crisis, and someone was lamenting, saying, "Gosh, we're you know the country's headed in such a bad direction." And Crystal apparently responded, "You're just going to have to relearn all the lessons again." And uh, I, I think recently too of this wonderful essay um, by Tom Wolfe from I think the '80s called "The Great Relearning." Oh, I, I pl that's, that's on the bingo card for this podcast. Yeah. I love that. And, and now, you know, now we're in the midst of the great unlearning. We're like just unlearning everything it took us two generations to figure out, right? Whether it has to do with drugs, crime, uh, whether it has to do with uh, the size of government, right? It's it, uh, uh, America's leadership in the world. We're just unlearning all that. Um, and so there's something that you're getting at related to kind of just human nature. And, you know, as, as you often say, um, you know, every, every new generation, we encounter barbarians again. And the conservative role should be to acculturate these barbarians, i.e. children, into, <laughs> into good citizens. Um, and America is failing terribly, terribly at that job. Yeah, I have a kind of funny, um, so like, you know how like, um, I don't know what is it, sociologists, historians, but there's this sort of sophisticated Marxist kind of form of analysis that says that material culture drives everything, like the physical technology of things. And I think there's more, that, that was got part of Whitaker Chambers' you know, argument about why he wasn't a conservative. Um, and I, I, I think there's a, all that stuff can be overstated, but there's a lot of truth to it. Um, it can veer into Frankfurt school nonsense. Um, like I think Horkheimer at one point argues that the way American windows were made where you have to slam them shut showed how deeply embedded fascism was in the American <laughs> society. I mean, like that kind of stuff is nonsense, but um, you know, automobiles change culture. Lots of physical things change culture. And um, I have this theory that part of sort of one of the, sort of background radiation for this great unlearning that you're talking about is the internet, which gives people more access to human knowledge than the average person ever had in all of human history by orders and orders and orders of magnitude, right? But fewer and fewer people want to access any of it. And instead, the internet encourage instant, ins encourages instantaneity in everything. 
and short-term memory in everybody. Um, and, and because a lot of the really important stuff is actually kind of hard to find on the internet, but the stuff that's of the moment is everywhere on the internet that it's kind of driving this sort of amnesia culture to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's hard to find, you know, forget back issues of the Atlantic or the national review or anything like that. You just, there's, you have to really go spelunking to find old information and old knowledge and, and get a sense of things. And, um, and people don't read books anymore because they're getting all this stuff from the web. And anyway, I, I don't think it's like, the explanation for the moment we're in, but I think it's one of those contributing factors to all of it. Yeah. I also think the just utterly corrupted state of American education is a big driving force here too. You know, I do, I teach every year at American university, a course that's uh, basically my book. Um, and what I found this year, I did a little bit a different approach. I, I, I tried to emphasize how parties change over time and also the internal factions and groups within America's parties and how they relate to each other over the course of the century, past century, uh, as well as some of the conservative ideas. And what I found was my students were utterly captivated by the politics because they didn't know any of it. They had, they had college students who had no real knowledge other than passing acquaintance with 20th century American history. And that to me is an indictment of this country's educational system. You have to provide young people with a, with a frame of reference, cultural reference points, one, so they can situate themselves in the ongoing story. And two, uh, so, uh, you know, they have a common language with each other right? We don't have that at all any longer. The internet's part of it for sure. Um, cultural technological change is part of it. Also the schools are a big part of it because that's, that's just not what is taught at most public schools these days. Yeah. And I mean that, the, the Howard Zinnification of a lot of American pedagogy is a disaster, right? And, um, I, I don't dispute that. Um, I just don't think it's a, it, 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 getting back to our previous point, it's just not a new observation for conservatives. This is, this is what conserve, you know, when we, when we get our jerseys on the, for the first day of spring training, we're supposed to complain about how badly they teach kids in our schools. Right. And you know, that's just what conservatives do. I don't need nationalists or integralists to tell me these things. And the data keeps proving us right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just incredible when you look at the learning loss out of the pandemic and, you know, there, we had this, it was a phenomenon on the left. I mean, I remember just uh, enjoying uh, being able to watch Ezra Klein learn things over the course of the first 15 years of the 21st century. And, um, you know, he would come up with this new idea and, you know, he'd find, wow, you know, the, the French, the French healthcare system has better results than the American one. This is huge, right? It's a, it, you know, so this is, you know, he had just solved a, you know, the, he just found the gravitational force, right? He right. was able to explain that and integrate it into general relativity. Um, and I like Ezra personally, and he's had me on my podcast, but he's still doing it. You know, he had this piece in the New York Times a while back called Everything Bagel Liberalism, where he found out this, you know, when the government tries to do everything, it's not really good at its basic functions. And I, I sent him, you know, I wanted to kind of 
say, yes, Ezra, right. That's what conservatives have been saying, you know, <laughs> for 80 years, right? That you, you figured it out, you know, but that should be encouraged. There's a similar phenomena, though, on the right, which is like, oh, you know, Japan had this ministry of technology and industry. We should copy that. Well, I don't know. Did it really work out for Japan? Doesn't seem to have. You know, I mean, Japan, of course, a great country, huge economy, but it, we're still uh, we're still outperforming them. Um, uh, you know, and it, it, it's, it's a sim. Oh, you know, George Kennan was thought that America's in foreign policy and diplomacy in the Cold War was counterproductive. Yeah, okay, but you know what? We won the Cold War. And maybe the world's a better place when America is leading it. Um, so you have that same type of uh, you know, this epif epiphanic phenomena where people read something and they say, ah, this is it. And I think we've talked about this before. It's kind of like a Glenn Beck phenomenon, like autodidacts just kind of have this uh, uh, tendency to they read something and it's like, oh, my God, this is earth shattering news when in fact yeah, we've, we've known that to be the case. Yeah. I mean, the example I always use about Glenn Beck is, and I like Glenn Beck personally. I think he is way over his skis once again, saying crazy things. And it's a shame, but, um, he, when he was at headline news, he would have me on a lot. I was sort of his informal intellectual historian consultant on a lot of things and not something at this stage. I brag about too much, but whatever. And, uh, and he had me on his radio show or his TV show. I can't remember. Yeah, it was radio show. And to talk about how he had just discovered that Martin Luther King was a socialist because some other, like Andrew Young had made reference to it and it was like blew him away. And he was like, people don't know this. This is like, he's, you know, he's on the same side as the, as the, as the, as the Stalinist purges and, and genocide in Ukraine no, it's a different kind of socialist. It's it's like social democracy. It's like he was not pro the liquidation of the kulaks. It's just you know like. But if you don't know the history, and then you get one little nugget of history that you don't know how to contextualize, you can go go wild with it. It was like remember when when uh, Paul Ryan said something about how he was a classical liberal and Breitbart. I mean, this was more deliberate than sort of ignorance, but still they're playing on the ignorance of their audience. The, the Breitbart.com under Bannon uh, did the um, Paul Ryan admits he's a liberal, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. and, and um, uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But all right, so I, I, before we get out of this, I, I, on the new left comparison, which I agree with you, there's just a lot of similarity, this sort of uh, sort of elite faction resentment stuff which you can trace pretty easily from Michael Anton forward. Um, you know, his whole thing about skinny tie conservatism going forward. Um, and, um, but what is it about? And so what is it about these kinds of intellectual squabbles where the, the radicals, and I think that's fair. I mean, like compact calls itself a radical journal of opinion or a journal of radical opinion or something radical. Right. Um, what is it about American political radicalism of the left or the right, which often starts on some 
completely understandable, almost prosaic issue of domestic disagreement or culture war thing that it always ends up being about foreign policy. Like, what is it? Why is it like, like you just can, you can almost set a clock when they, they get radical and, and pretty soon they're going to stop talking about the schools and start talking about American empire. What, what is that? That's a great, great question. Um, and I've often thought that domestic politics and foreign policy are much more related than people think. Maybe the cause is slightly wrong, uh, is, slight, is the reverse of the actuality in this sense, which it may be that foreign policy is what spawns the radicalism. Um, uh, though it's hard to say, right? I mean, this, the free speech movement at Berkeley in the 60s, you know, it also had to do with civil rights. It had to do with the baby boomers coming to college and feeling hemmed in by the liberal institution and that it had a lot to do with Vietnam, right? And, you know, so much of the right today, the American right today, is uh, an expression of attitudes and sentiments and ideas associated with Patrick Buchanan. And so Buchanan began to turn against the conservative movement and against the neocons who he said were in charge of the Republican Party in Operation Desert Storm, okay? The first Iraq war. And that's when, that's when he made clear that his version of America first would not endorse us uh, leading a multinational coalition simply to eject a foreign army from a country that it had occupied illegally, Iraq and occupying Kuwait, right? He was against that. And then he began his journey, right? Where he uh, condemned American foreign policy in general. He uh, abandoned um, free trade, which he had supported during the Cold War. Um, he, uh, and all of, it, all of his kind of beliefs in many ways informed the opposition to the second Iraq war and then flowered under Donald Trump. And you could see it a lot in the right. So in some ways it may start actually with foreign policy and, and then kind of goes backward into American politics. Um, and what I, I, my explanation for that very preliminary would be that would be twofold. One is, you know, war and peace are serious matters. Mm -hmm. People will die, you know, so people should be engaged, right? The second reason is um, foreign policy is related to one's view of America's purpose. What is America's role in the world? What does America stand for? Are we to be simply a light unto the nations or are we to be the guarantor of global security? Should we um, promote human rights no matter the cost or should we be selective in our relationships? These are important um, political questions that don't just relate to what's happening overseas, but actually inform your attitudes of what's happening at home. And it is interesting that radicals of both the left and the right, when they start down uh, the purely objective anti-American position in foreign policy, they end up condemning America as a society and as a culture too. 
It's, it's, it might start out by saying, oh, America is wrong. It ends up with America is evil. And that's essentially what the anti-war left, how they transited through the controversy surrounding Vietnam. More and more on parts of the new right, you see that as well. Uh, it, it, what's weird is, you know, um, America's, uh, America's not actually engaged in Ukraine. <laughs> it's, we're simply buying things. We're actually buying American-made weapons. That's right. Right. And, and then it, shipping them. So John Kenneth Galbraith would love the Keynesian multipliers of like <laughs> buying stuff in the American arms industry. <laughs> you know, I, I always like to say, okay, you want an industrial policy? I have one for you. It's called defense policy. Mm-hmm. If you want to ratchet up the defense budget, fine by me. Let's right. revitalize our defense industrial base. I don't good, care. Good factory jobs. Like totally. in the 1950s. Yeah. No, like and, the and, aerospace and, industry in California helped elect Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Right. So, you know, I, but somehow that part is missing because it's from a lar- it's from a it's from a well we America is to blame for the war one we're the one we forced Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine by by expanding NATO uh, not to include Ukraine uh, but you know but by laying out a promise to Ukraine that one day it could be a NATO member. Um, and two that because we're responsible, you know what maybe American society because uh, people fly the rainbow flag on government buildings, that is utterly corrupted too. So, so it's, 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 it, it, it's kind of a, um, a path that you follow. And it has to do ultimately with one your, your views of America, America's purpose, um, and, and America's strengths, or really America's weaknesses. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really getting at the core of it to a certain extent. It seems to me part of it is that um, the thing that the, the, the radical new right and the radical old left share is they start from the premise of blame America first, right? There is a problem in the world it must be our fault. And then they connect the dots as they need to, to make that argument. Right. So Ukraine, it's our fault for expanding NATO, right? Russia doesn't seem to have a problem with adding Finland to NATO, even though that's like a 900 mile border. Um, uh, but anyway, that's, that's a, that's a topic for another podcast. The, and so you get this, um, this kind of connect the dots thing to domestic um, politics. And the people, the canaries in the coal mine for this, I think were basically the Ron Paul brigades, right? Who um, have seemed to have, I mean, talk about deep state paranoia stuff. They've seemed to have metastasized throughout many right-wing institutions. Um, The, this, this, this goofball who runs the New York young Republicans club was a former Ron Paul guy or Rand Paul guy or Paulista, whatever. Um, uh, the, the sort of racist anti-Semitic sort of, um, uh, fecal particulates running through the body politic all can be traced back to one degree or another to, to some of these guys. And, um, 
And, you know, Ron Paul always used to make a very new left argument, which was that the national security state was taking away our freedoms at home. Um, and, uh, and that's what we really should be afraid of. And I remember writing a piece for NR saying, okay, well, let's just actually look at the history here. Right. I mean, since the rise of the national military industrial complex and the national security state, um, what f- freedoms have been taken away and where is the connective tissue? And there's just no freaking connective tissue. I'm not saying that we are freer in every regard than we were a hundred years ago, you know, but like, I don't know, the women can vote black people vote and don't have to, and they can marry whoever they want, you know, like, and yet the military industrial complex was increasing at this time, you know, during this time, there is this weird sort of very literary, very sort of romantic view that we live in an a that, that empire abroad leads to uh, tyranny at home. And you can hear it in a lot of these sort of radical types. And I just don't see much evidence for it in reality um and i'm not even saying i'm not saying we have an empire it doesn't bother me if it's a liberal empire that much right voluntary coalition kind of thing and but the the idea in classical political theory or conservative theory or you know whatever theory you want to find it that the idea of being protective of america at home um and engaging the world abroad somehow translates to a loss of freedom at home. It's just, it's not there, right? I mean, like countries have walls around them to protect, to protect the freedoms, the domestic freedoms. And our armies may do terrible things outside of those walls, but they're doing it to protect the freedoms at home. And, um, but you listen, you, whether it's the, 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 the integralists or the nationalists or, the Paulistas or all sorts of flavors of new lefty. They all work on, a, on a, this assumption that the, the, the problems of America in the world are creating the problems of America at home. Yeah. I mean, uh, you mentioned the new Republic earlier. And of course, one of its senior editors, Randolph Bourne uh, famously resigned uh, from the magazine when it endorsed American intervention in the first world war. And if, if Bourne is known today at all, it's uh, through his quote, war is the health of the state. And he is a hero uh, to um, old right or libertarian uh, uh, figures today um, for his um, articulation of the connection between war and the expansion of the central government. And so, you know, at the beginning of my story on the right, uh, figures like Nock, Mencken, of course, they were both non-interventionist and anti-statist for exactly that reason. They thought that the more you expanded um, the more you involved yourself overseas, the more government expanded home. Robert Taft, the, the leader of American conservatism up to his death in 1953, thought the same way. Buckley um, uh, in National Review uh, writes about this. Uh, actually, before he launches National Review, William F. Buckley Jr. says, look, it's true. War expands the central government. And as conservatives, we are opposed to the central government. That's really our motivating um idea um but in the context of the cold war we need to accept the fact that we need a large security apparatus to defend against communism at home and abroad and that was a a compromise it was an intellectual position that held for the duration of the cold war it begins to break down um 
as I said, after the Cold War ends in 1990, even before the Cold War officially ends in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Buchanan is out there saying, America first, second, and third. We're not, why should we save the, the, the sheikhs in Kuwait? And all of a sudden you see a shift back very slowly, not even wholly toward the earlier old right position on the connection between foreign policy and the central government and the attitudes toward uh, intervention. And so the Buchanan thread is picked up by Ron Paul in 08 and 2012. It's picked up slightly by Ron Paul's son, Rand, when Rand is elected to the Senate in 2010, but then um, has the very short-lived libertarian moment, according to the New York Times Magazine in 2014. The libertarian moment ended right up until the moment uh, ISIS beheaded an American, and then uh, we, uh, America intervened in Syria. Um, and, then, and then, of course, with Trump. So Trump was the gateway for uh, the uh, critics of um, Cold War conservatism, for lack of a better term, uh, at the, this moment, to reassert themselves within the conservative movement and the Republican coalition. And I, I think it's significant that the president of the Heritage Foundation, Kevin Roberts, uh, references in his speeches his organizing for Pat Buchanan in 1992, Buchanan's challenge to George H.W. Bush. Um, that, the Buchanan of 92 was not the Buchanan of 96. Uh, when he did really just abandon um, free market economics. Um, but it, it was the Buchanan who had opposed the Gulf War and uh, who said that the only reason um, uh, we, were, we were engaged in that project was the Israel lobby. Um, so that I think, I think Buchanan, even though he recently retired um, from writing, uh, his he still exerts quite a bit of influence on, um, on a large part uh, of the conservative movement. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to, we're running along here, but like, and we're not going to get in weeds on this, but like the other thing that radicals often end up doing after making a big deal about foreign policy is then making a big deal about the Jews. Right. I mean, that is a very old story <laughs> and I don't know who it's going to happen to. And I don't want to like, you can't preemptively criticize people for becoming anti-Semites before they actually become anti-Semites. But some of these people, I, I predict, we're going to start seeing some of this stuff uh, down the road because it's, it's something about the psychology leads it there. Um, and I want to be very clear, I'm not aware of any of the intellectuals. We, certainly, Yoram Hosoni is not an anti-Semite. Right? Um, um, but like, uh, it just, it, it feels like it's going to come one of these days. Um, uh, that said, the thing I, I just want to push back for a second. I agree with you historically. The argument: war is the health of the state. War leads to centralization. War does lead to centralization. Just ask poor Milton Friedman, you know, who came up with uh, a paycheck withholding to raise money for World War II and as a temporary government program, and that's what inspired him to say, "There's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program." Um, so I agree with all of that historically. But there's a difference between defense spending and war, right? And particularly modern war, which is not total war, right? I mean, like the mobilization of the domestic economy 
for say World War One, never mind like the Civil War or World War Two, um, does lend to this argument about the, you know the rise of the what was it Arthur Eaker calls it the Garrison State. I get I get that argument, but now with an all volunteer army and reliance on very advanced technology. There's very little evidence that there's any connective tissue between domestic centralization and American foreign policy. And, you know, for the people who say the rise of the military industrial complex and the national security state leads to the loss of freedoms at home, put aside whether there have been lost freedoms at home. I'm, I'm hard pressed to see them. Um, the, the, the share of central, the amount of government that we've gotten in terms of like centralized government and all that kind of stuff has been going up and up and up and up and up as defense spending as a share of GDP has been going down and down and down and down and down since the 1960s. And so the idea that there's a tight correlation between these things about, you know, the this spending on empire, you know, versus, you know, spending on social engineering at home, the data is just not there. Yeah. No, I think there's something to that, you know, I mean, American, what's the connection between defense spending and the EPA? You know, I mean, it, um, it's, it's hard to draw that. And I think you know, when we think about examples of, you know, intrusive government, it's in terms of the regulatory state. Now, you know, I think if Ron Paul were sitting next to me right now, uh, You'd be very uncomfortable. He, I would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> He'd be, he, would, he would have spent the last hour and 15 minutes screaming at me. Um, but he would also say, well, look, you know, that defense spending is also going into kind of the NSA and all the various surveillance programs, which I believe can be defended on their merits and I don't believe have been abused. But in that mindset, the very existence is an abuse. Um, so there's just, you know, that's how it brought... I, it might, when we got into the war on terrorism after the 9-11 attacks, you know, we did expand the government. Uh, we reorganized the government, the Department of Homeland Security. We spent a, a heck of a lot of money on the TSA and the security apparatus. Uh, we, Bush did boost uh, defense spending. We gave $87 billion in reconstruction aid uh, as a baseline. Uh, for Iraq in 2003. Um, so that's, uh, that's where that, yeah, that's fair. That's that fair. argument comes into came into play again. And Ron right. Paul begins building up strength, you know, in 08. And at first we're all kind of dismissing it because he's, you know, he's kind of wackadoo. Um, but I, in retrospect, in my view, um, it showed something that, 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 feeling on the American right uh, that that suggests that now with the end of communism, we should go back. We should demobilize, right? That was the difference after World War II. America had always demobilized and radically cut our defense spending, the size of our army. After World War II, we did the opposite because we were facing the challenge of the Soviet Union. That idea that after the Cold War, it was time to go back to the America of the past, uh, remained very strong. And what's interesting, though, is even though that sentiment remains strong, um, these are also the same people who say that, you know, we should cut off Ukraine and spend all of our money fighting China. So I guess, uh, one, are they, you know, maybe they're not the same people or maybe they're not really being 
serious when they say we should spend all of our money fighting China. But the idea that the Chinese Communist Party represents a threat as significant as the Soviet Union did to America is just coming into formation. It's not complete. So that's why I can say that I think anti-wokeism serves a more unifying function than even anti-CCP sentiment at this point. Maybe that will change if there's a crisis in, on the Taiwan Strait. Um, but we're, we're not quite there yet where the overarching threat from China is enough to sublimate the critics of American foreign policy on, uh, on, the, on the right or on the left for that matter. I have a theory about that, which is that the Soviet Union was, among other things, an avatar, an exemplar of an ideological approach that was the equivalent of wokeism politically today, domestically, right? I mean, like you had, there was paranoia about it, but there was reality to it too. It was like communists and pro-communists or anti-anti-communists or, you know, that whole group, the useful idiots, whatever, punched wildly above their weight culturally and politically in American life in the thirties through the seventies and, um, and you know, all that stuff about Marxism taking over the universities and all of these things, which again, had some merit. Um, you felt like there were domestic enemies, you know, that became caricatures for like the John Birch society types, but nonetheless was a real thing. And there are very, you know, other than Tom Friedman 15 years ago, I mean, who, is actually kind of doing Chinese model boosterism domestically in a way that I'm, I know I'm teeing you up here in a way that is even remotely analogous to what like Galbraith and others wrote about the Soviet union. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just smiling because ironically you can find some boosterism of the Chinese model in the pages of American affairs. Today. I know that. Yeah. Uh, and professor David A. Bell, I think is another, he's out with a book, um, uh, boasting about the efficacy of the Chinese model. I, 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 I like your theory a lot. I would add a couple things. Um, one, the external dimension, China's not really on the move in the sense the Soviet Union was after World War II, where you just got the sense of this force just coming closer and closer and closer. And then with once Stalin dies and Khrushchev comes to power, you know, Khrushchev is literally saying, we are going to bury you. You know, that does kind of get people's attention, right? And the Chinese, they're, they, they don't engage in that. And in fact, it's only their current leader, Xi Jinping, who's been in power for a decade now, who is really starting to amp up the, the rhetoric. Previous leaders, they wanted, to, they wanted to be low profile and they really wanted to just build up their strength. They weren't encroaching on, um, uh, on foreign countries. I mean, ironic, you know, we see the treatment of Xinjiang, we see what's happened to Hong Kong since 2019. So we might be getting closer to the sense that, oh, that external threat is a wake-up call. And the second is, in, in the, the balloon is a great example of that, right? The balloon the reaction, was, that's, yeah. that's what I mean. It's like, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, um, it was like a mini Sputnik. Yeah. And the second dimension is internal, which is, it's just a case that because of the last great wave of migration, you had millions of Americans who were either descended from or related to 
people who lived in countries under communist dominion. And so there was like a, and those countries were uh, Catholic or, you know, uh, to, many of them were Catholic, others were Orthodox. Um, but there was just a lot of people in America who formed a, you know, a, an electoral base for an anti-communist policy. Um, just sheer numbers, we don't have the same number of Americans today who are as direct, who have been directly affected by uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and that, you know, that will change over time, I think, just because of our de demographics. But I think we're still waiting, most importantly, for that um, a, a something even more forceful than a spy balloon um, to kind of jolt us. We're getting there. I mean, and I think that Mike Gallagher's committee on the Chinese Communist Party has been very effective so far. Um, but you see, you know, you read in the Washington Post uh, the morning that we record this that you know discussions between Biden officials and Chinese representatives in Europe are going very well, and you know. Biden wants China to take more of a role in peacemaking in Ukraine. Really? I don't. <laughs> I don't. And I think it betrays a lack of seriousness on the Biden administration's part um, about the challenge that China presents. All right. Obviously, I could go on forever, um, but I kind of have. So, um, <laughs> uh, Matt Connetti, I, I it's been too long. Um, I hope you come back. I know, like, did you have to skip the commentary podcast this morning to come on here? Oh, no. No, okay. this is my second podcast of the day. I've now, I've now been talking for a long time. You've almost talked as much as Pod did in the, <laughs> on his podcast. No, I kid. I kid. No comment. I yeah. kid because I love. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to record a podcast with Pod later today. We're recording a oh, new this episode is amazing. of Amazing. Yeah. So what's up? This is the conservative podcast universe, the CPU. We're just taking off. We're, we're going to displace the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the podcast singularity is upon us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Matthew Gaganetti, the book is The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, now out in paperback with a new afterword about the Trump era. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, John. Okay. So Matt Continetti has left the building. Um, um, we really, I'm, at some point, we'll just have to do another one where we actually talk about like the last third of his book, which we didn't get a chance to do. But um, uh, I thought this was a fun conversation. And I was just saying to Matt, um, after we stopped recording, I know we went long, but my, as you know, my, my philosophy is if people are really not liking the conversation, they're not going to make it to the 50 or 55 minute mark. And if they are really enjoying the conversation, they're going to stick around. They're not going to want it to end at the 60 minute mark. So I don't, you know, I don't care that we went long. I mean, it creates problems for Adam, but you know, that's why we pay him. Um, and, um, uh, we'll put the links to the first two episodes. Um, the, 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 the two parter that we did on his book in the show notes, um, people should check that out. And, um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.